Want to hear more about life from a Catholic perspective? Ave Spotlight is a new weekly podcast where you can listen to hosts Father Dennis Strack, CSC, and Katie Prejean McGrady as they talk with special guests about culture, current events, and all things Catholic. You'll walk away with a better understanding of your faith and how to live it in the world today. Check it out on AveMariaPress.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Ave Maria Press on social media. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. But do we, as Catholics, really understand what the Eucharist is? Let me rephrase that. Do we really understand who the Eucharist is? Actually, let me try one more time. Do we fully revere and adore him who meets us in the Eucharist? Maybe we could use some help with all of that. My friend and colleague Tim O'Malley has written a book that will help all of us both to understand the Eucharist better and, especially, to grow in our love of the Eucharist through devotion, prayer, and longing. Tim's new book is Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? The book is part of the new Engaging Catholicism series from our McGrath Institute for Church Life through Ave Maria Press— where we explore important but perhaps misunderstood doctrines and devotions of the Catholic faith. In Real Presence, Tim teaches us about the related but distinct doctrines of transubstantiation and of the Real Presence. But he does more than merely teach us things to know. He shows us how what we come to understand must be joined to how we pray and how we allow the Lord to transform and illumine our spiritual senses as we meet him in the Eucharist. This is an utterly practical book, even as it is an utterly learned book. And today, Tim joins me to talk about the Eucharist, Eucharistic formation, and Eucharistic spirituality. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Tim, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. So Tim, in this book, you situate your recovery of the doctrines of real presence and transubstantiation in what a recent Pew study found regarding Catholics' belief about the Eucharist. So to get us started here, tell us what's the upshot of this study and what do you think about it? Yeah, so every two or three years, Pew releases a study that shows that Catholics either believe or don't believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. The question is something like, is Christ literally present in the Eucharist in a sort of physical way? The most recent data shows that only 31% of Catholics say yes to this. And so it raises some concerns about whether folks understand the doctrine of real presence and transubstantiation. You know, someone like Bishop Barron, I think, pro- appropriately always says that, you know, we have to improve catechesis here. And of course, it's true. I teach. I've done catechesis in parishes since I was, you know, in eighth grade and people don't get the doctrine. So I totally get that. On the other hand, I think also the the study has its limitations. 
it's not actually the language of the church around the Blessed Sacrament. Mm-hmm. It speaks of a substantial presence, not a physical presence. So it is a substantial presence. And so that particular language is important. Although there are some, I think, particularly in the church, who every time it comes out, someone like Father Tom Reese will say, why do Catholics care about this at all? It doesn't really matter. As long as you believe that Jesus is present, then that's good enough. And so I think what you end up there is a dismissal of actually some real problems with understanding the particulars of Catholic doctrine and the right language around the sacrament, which really opens us up to a whole form of life if we properly understand that language. So on the one hand, like you're saying, with the Pew study, the question is something like, is Christ actually or physically or literally present? So there's a kind of problem with the way in which the question's asked. And so you can't fully trust the response where it's 31% of Catholics say yes. Maybe some of them are saying no because the question is phrased in the wrong way. But then on the other side, as you're saying, there is a kind of dismissal of the sort of particularity of the belief. All that really matters is that you just believe that Christ is present and it doesn't really matter the nature of that belief as long as you, you know, basically assent, right? So as you were saying, like the belief in the real presence and the doctrine of transubstantiation leads us as Catholics to a belief in and an assent to the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So how do we grapple with the distinction there of substantial versus whether it's actual or physical, literal, or it just doesn't matter as long as we say he's present? Yeah, so substantial presence is important. The language of substantial comes about in around 1,000, 1,100 when we're trying to understand that Christ is present in the Blessed Sacrament, not at a physical level, not at a material level that can be perceived by the senses, but at the level of substance. So this is counterintuitive to us because we think about substance as something that's physically there, mass, substantial is something that really is heavy and and matters. But substantial in the Eucharist means that which is not visible. It is the thing that makes the thing what it is that you can't see, right? So you could look at 15 million dogs and they could all look different and but yet there's dogness right and dogness isn't just visible it's not just a gathering together of all the things that make this a dog it's its substance it can it 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 bypasses what can be seen so in the eucharist the substantial presence of christ is that what looks like bread and wine really becomes at the level of substance body and blood of christ and yet at the level of species, what can be seen, touched, tasted, you know, perceptible dimension, it remains what looks like bread and wine. So the accidents stay behind. That's a miracle. And the purpose of the miracle is that Christ desires to feed himself to us in a way that we can receive him. Nobody wants cannibalism. <laughs> Nobody wants to eat a sort of bloody object, right? That's not the point of the Eucharist. We're we're human beings. We eat bread and wine. We don't eat flesh. And so Christ gives himself to us in a way that we can eat him, but we do eat all of him, or rather he eats us is probably more accurate. He takes us into himself. Mm -hmm. So it's a full gift of self. So the way you said it there, the miracle is that the accidents stay behind. Is that, am I I hearing that right? That the miracle is not the transubstantiation then that the substance changes. The miracle is that the accidents stay behind. Yeah, well, I mean, the problem with thinking about miracle related to substance is that actually it's not a physical thing. So miracles are physical Mm -hmm. and 
in the transformation of the Eucharist is not a physical change. And so it's not a miraculous change. It's a sacramental change because Christ said on the night before he died, this is my body and this is my blood. Whereas the accidents remaining behind is something at the level of the physical in the philosopher who was used often to discuss about the Eucharist, in the philosopher Aristotle, there's no such thing as a substance that changes that keeps its accidents. So it's a miracle because nothing like this exists in the entire sort of world. Now, of course, this is not just like a, a kind of nice, pleasant explanation that makes sense of everything. And so the, the church kind of found the right language and they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. Woo, um, <laughs> now we can do this. It does give us a hint of what the destiny of all matter, of all existence is. is we're all to be totally transformed into Christ. You know, all of that which is most material, all of that which is physical of ours is to be totally transformed into Christ. And so, yeah, I mean, it is a miracle, but it's the miracle of Christian transformation that I think that we're all to, to participate in. Do we see something sort of anticipating that in, say, like Exodus 3 with the burning bush where God makes himself known to Moses and the thing that catches Moses's attention is this bush that is aflame but not consumed. And so the bush remains and yet the flame is there fully as flame. Yeah, it's funny you point that one out. I mean, of course, that's a very prominent image. There's a beautiful painting, uh, and I think a work that you know of by Verdin, Timothy Verdin, mm -hmm. of the, of course, Mary as this burning bush, right? Mm -hmm. And keeping in her womb, in the tabernacle, the sort of Christ body. And so, yeah, I think I, I think that, that sort of imagery in the scriptures help us understand it. That's the other dimension, I think, of this language is, you know, as you point out the scriptural reference, in some ways, we when we think people don't understand the Eucharist, sometimes we put far too much focus on just trying to understand like the technical mm -hmm. sort of description of transubstantiation, whereas we, we forget the many images or types of the Eucharist that are described. Like St. Thomas Aquinas certainly talked about transubstantiation, but he didn't only talk about transubstantiation. And he talked about all these images that help us to understand what's taking place within the sacrament. In essence, we can't see what's taking place in the sacrament, but these images like the burning bush and other things help us to actually develop these spiritual senses to recognize what's happening. You know, that's another dimension, I think, why the Pew study kind of gets it a little bit wrong because it, it doesn't locate uh, the Eucharist in, in all of those types or images of what the blessed sacrament is. Yeah, I mean, to your point about the sort of technical language and, and sort of maybe the obsession or overemphasis on kind of grasping this in the technical dimensions, you would imagine that almost no child who's receiving their first communion would therefore qualify as believing fully in that way if we just stuck with that. But some of the most beautiful Eucharistic spirituality is in young children who are receiving the Eucharist for the first time. Your son, who is preparing for first communion, my godson, happens to be the same person your son, my godson. In this particular instance. In this particular instance, yes. So like, how do we think about that? So a child who's coming forward to receive their first Holy Communion, who wouldn't be able to speak necessarily about substance and accidents, and yet has a real living faith and belief that this is Jesus being given to me. Yeah, I mean, and this is where, though I, I really do appreciate Bishop Barron's point about catechesis, I think when we understand catechesis is reducible to doctrinal explication, mm -hmm. we really miss out on the actual problem with Eucharistic presence, which is reverence. It's Eucharistic devotion and reverence that enables us to recognize real presence. 
you know, my son comes to recognize the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, not because we did a joint reading of Thomas's treatise on the Eucharist together, which we could do. It would He would be very distracted, and I don't think I'd be very good at it with him, but because I make him genuflect before the Blessed Sacrament, because I want him to see benediction and adoration. I want him to know that our Lord is there. The language I adopt around the Blessed Sacrament is really quite key. I kind of had a conversion while writing this book where the Academy says, you know, be objective, take a step back, you know, make sure that you don't, you know, even in my own field of liturgy and sacraments, don't overemphasize Eucharistic presence. And I guess while doing this book, I realized that that's part of the problem is that we don't recognize the particularity of this presence. Mm. We don't bend the knee before the Blessed Sacrament. We don't refer to the host as our Lord, as uh, sort of Jesus Christ made present, uh, O Sacrament most holy, O Sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving, be ever glory thine, addressed as person. And so I think that's much more important than in some ways transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the thing that you introduce people to once they actually believe and have an experience of our Lord being present in the blessed sacrament. When they have that, then you can enter the doctrine and begin to describe it because the the natural question that then is asked is, well, how? Mm -hmm. How, in what mode? Rather than immediately sort of beginning with transubstantiation. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. Tim O'Malley is joining me today. We're discussing Eucharistic formation and enlivening the spiritual senses, building off his new book, Real Presence. What does it mean? Why does it matter? So to that point about reverence being key to the ascent, the belief in the Eucharistic presence, you talk about, you know, in the formation of your own son who's receiving his first Holy Communion, teaching him to reverence the Blessed Sacrament, to kneel. And it, you know, caught my attention that you dedicated this book to your grandparents who, as it says at the beginning, to my grandparents, Margaret and Richard Thompson, who taught me to bend a knee to the Eucharistic Lord. So what you're saying there, and based on what you've just said here, is they taught you what the real presence of Christ is. You've studied all this stuff. You know more than, far more than me about it. You know more than probably most, if not all of our listeners, but you learned the most important thing from them in their reverence of the Blessed Sacrament. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, my grandparents were the reason I'm Catholic. So, well, I mean, my mother also made sure I was baptized. But, you know, when I was about to I was like a lot of Catholics. I didn't go to Sunday school or catechesis or anything like that. And my mother was not really necessarily considering uh, making sure that I went to First Communion. But my grandmother, who is was an indefatigable person, was ensuring that this was going to happen. And so, you know. <laughs> As I, only a grandmother could, right? Yes. Correct. So I grew up in South Florida and my grandmother began to drag me and my brother to the 7 a.m. mass at our very old parish. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Florida. So they were 7 a.m. It was just old people. <laughs> our priest on the way out, I think he may have died <laughs> at mass sometime. He was very old. He was very old. And he was retired. This was his retirement gig was to move to Florida and, you know, would sort of on the way out would say like, let's go Dolphins every single week. It didn't sure. matter if there was a football game. No. Just let's go Dolphins. Sometimes it's just rooting for the creatures. Yeah, it was I think in March or something. <laughs> so, you know, but they dragged me. My my grandmother made me learn the prayers and mm -hmm. she taught me the mass and made me go to mass at 6.30 in the morning. And 
I think between the two of them, my grandfather, who had a very deep devotion to our Lord, and my grandmother, I recognized, like, wow, this is a big deal. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I still remember everything about, you know, receiving my first communion. I were all white. I was quite sort of dressed up and exactly what you'd expect in Florida first communion mm-hmm. wear in the 80s. But it was a transformative moment of my life. And it was all my grandparents that taught it and passed it on to me. Everything that I read later on made sense of that experience that my grandparents first initiated me into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something that struck me in reading this book. It's the, you, there's a very scholarly approach that's sort of hidden. And by that, I mean, as you're reading it, me as a reader, you can very easily forget that there's a sort of scholarly scaffolding, which is a good thing because it means it's like utterly readable and you're learning, and you're moving along as a reader, but you trace the development of the doctrine but you're also at the same time sort of introducing us as readers to the ways in which that doctrine is never separated in the tradition of the church from the growth in the reverence and the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. So the mind is sort of reaching for this mystery at the same time that the body and the heart are sort of pining for it and grasping for it. Where do we find, I mean, I suppose we find this all throughout the tradition, but like where does it kind of shine forth for us and with really clear light that we see what we should perhaps be shooting for now, which is the reunion of this understanding, but an understanding that's also bodily and effective and spiritual. Yeah. I mean, I think you find it all over the tradition. I I mean, I'm very moved every time I read Cyril of Jerusalem, a fourth, fifth century bishop in Jerusalem, hence of Jerusalem, (laughs) explain what the Eucharistic presence is and how he had a real sense of Christ's body and blood being present. And yet he was capable of noting that our relationship, therefore, to the Eucharistic elements, right? The the sort of tenderness by which we should treat the body of Christ, creating a throne for our Lord, even marking our very senses with his blood upon our our lips, our eyes. Uh, Don't do that anymore, but Mm -hmm. that's what Cyril did. So you find it there, and you even find it in the debate around transubstantiation. The way that the Eucharist is explained in that very technical sense doesn't arise because a bunch of bishops and theologians got together and said, this has to be more complicated so that people (laughs) don't understand it. Um, They were trying to explain Eucharistic processions and this rise of Eucharistic miracles where a host would appear as Christ's body. They were trying to understand you know, the rise of the Feast of Corpus Christi and the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And how could we adore the Eucharistic elements unless they were really in some way a substantial presence of our Lord? And so you have the technical doctrinal explanation follows from the devotion. It's not the other way around. It's Mm -hmm. not that devotion arose from doctrine. Devotion rarely arises from doctrine. Doctrine helps to guard the devotion. It's it's that way that works. It, it enables devotion to flourish. It, and that way it serves it, at least in a sense, in helping it to be reasonable. Like the devotion is reasonable, not just in the sense that it's measured and doesn't get out of whack and extreme, but also it ought to be explainable to others. Like this is what is going on. So imagine here when you're talking about the doctrine of transubstantiation, it requires some philosophical precision to say this, not that, and this following that. So it makes it communicable both to those who have this Eucharistic faith, but also 
it can be interpreted and at least notionally understood by those who do not. This is what we believe and this is what we do not believe. That's right, yeah. So it allows for that precision. And then further, it then comes back into devotion and then Mm -hmm. you can sort of create poetry and art and, uh, you know, the flourishing of of late medieval art is really because of the doctrine of transubstantiation. I mean, there's a million examples of altarpieces of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin that emerged from this doctrine of transubstantiation so that they understood the moment of consecration as the moment which our Lord became flesh, just like he did in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. Mm -hmm. And that leads to other spiritual insights. And this is how traditions develop and enrich. And so, yeah, I, I think having that doctrine enables that explication and it enables even St. Thomas to write his poetry for the Feast of the Eucharist or for the Feast of Corpus Christi for the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined by Tim O'Malley. We're discussing Eucharistic formation, the doctrines of real presence and transubstantiation. We're building off Tim's new book, Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? It's out now from Ave Maria Press. You know, on that point in terms of like this Eucharistic art, the flourishing of the poetic imagination. I had a moment in our Basilica of the Sacred Heart here with a student some years ago whom you had taught, and I got to take credit for the insight that he, I think, drew from you. So it was great because I got to feel good as a teacher, but you did the work beforehand, I think. So this is Simon Brake. Remember Simon? Who's a, a sort of brilliant, discerning person in his own right, but we're standing there before the altar at the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, and in the transept, in the um, the sort of cycle of images that are up above there, it is the childhood and story of Mary. And on one side of the altar, as you're facing the altar, you would have the Annunciation scene on the right as you're facing the altar. And on the other side, the left side of the altar, you have the visitation. And Simon was standing there and he sort of cocked his head to the side, looking at it. And he's like, you know, on one side, the angel comes to Mary to announce. And on the other sign, you have her actual response where she goes in haste to her cousin Elizabeth. So what you have right here in the middle is actually her word, her ascent, right over the altar. And he said, it's like this column of yes. And it was it was kind of like this exploding little moment where everybody just said, oh, you know, they all gasped at once because seeing the altar in that way, that here is the Blessed Mother's consent, her word, to receive the word into her flesh. And this is where the priest takes those elements and blesses them and consecrates them and holds them up and says, this is my body and this is my blood. And it is the same point where we come forward and we're presented the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and we say amen. And so Simon just sort of grasped that all at once. But what you're saying in this art, in this poetry, it kind of frees the imagination to do that, right? And then it becomes formative of the faithful. Yeah, I I think that that example is a perfect sort of reason to return to what we said earlier, why part of this catechesis and formation is not just the result of explaining a doctrine, but it is a formation into images and devotional life and entering a kind of workshop or atrium, I suppose, in a kind of catechesis of the Good Shepherd sense where we come to recognize our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament through the play of these images and these ideas. And it's really the whole thing together. And so how do we improve Eucharistic catechesis? we got to do all these things. It's about devotion. It's about imagery, materiality. 
It's about using incense and altar pieces and all these dimensions that I think are are sort of left behind that I think we need to reclaim. Mm. Can you talk about one of these things that I think sometimes gets brought up when we're talking about transubstantiation? It's kind of like the miracle of the bleeding host, or like you were saying, like we're given bread and wine because we eat bread and wine and Christ comes to us in that way. But there have been these miracles where the consecrated host appears as flesh or the cup appears as blood. In this case, the accidents, the materiality of it. How does that relate or not relate to the doctrine of transubstantiation? Yeah, I remember the moment when I was introduced to the answer to this. I was in a course with a professor at Notre Dame. Joseph Warakow. Yes. And we were reading through all of St. Thomas very slowly on the Eucharist. And the very important point that St. Thomas makes is that the blessed, that in such a moment, that's a second miracle, Mm. another miracle that is designed for the sake of eliciting faith in real presence, but is not like, oh, now we looked under the hood and we see what's really happening. <laughs> That's not real, real presence. It's just, it's it, pointing back to the real it's presence. It's pointing towards you, towards belief. And so in that yeah. sense, it can actually be abused like any miracle, right? You could say, you could stop there and say, oh, well, that's all that I want to see. Or, you know, there's a lot of Eucharistic miracles, even in the Middle Ages, that were used for rather terrible, nefarious purposes, mm. you know, sort of anti-Semitic purposes or things like that. And so you miss the whole point of the miracle should refer you back to the charity of Christ and to the love of what's bestowed in the blessed sacrament and thus to faith. And so it's a secondary miracle. And I think we have to be very careful with Eucharistic miracles, not to say like, ah, now we have proof of transubstantiation. That's incorrect. We are pointed back to profess faith in the real presence. But it's not like science suddenly where we can say like, oh, well, now we know what's happening. Well, it becomes violent in that way. If you're like, here's the proof, you ought to believe it, right? Like it's not actually an appeal to your freedom to receive Christ. It's forcing him on you, which is precisely what he's not doing. Exactly. Yeah. So we have a couple minutes left. Why don't you, if you don't mind, give us a taste of where you end up in this book. You bring us to these Eucharistic saints or Eucharistic witnesses, three nuns, I believe, from the medieval period, I think (laughs) <laughs> the Helfta. I know a lot about these women. The it's it's Gertrude yes. and the two Mechtilds. Mechtilds. I think one time I said meth childs, and then I said, is it meth children? And then you said, you got it all wrong. So I got it wrong in any event. Um, and then uh, three more contemporary figures. You have Simone Weil, who's the almost Catholic philosopher. You have Flannery O'Connor, the American Catholic novelist, and Dorothy Day, the co-founder of the Catholic worker movement. Maybe just zoom in on one of them. And if you don't pick Simone Bay, I'll probably just ask you about her afterwards. So, but choose anyone you want. Great. Yeah. I mean, I think my main point in this chapter is that there's another argument against these women mm. or against Eucharistic presence that it just doesn't care about the poor or the hungry or the thirsty mm. and it's disconnected from desire. And I think what you find is that actually throughout the totality of the tradition, both of these are connected, right? So Mechtild of Magdeburg is a medieval figure who perceives Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, she's not able to regularly receive because she's a lay woman mm-hmm. and not able to receive regularly. And yet she not only gave her life for care of those who were like suffered from the plague, but she received the Blessed Sacrament with regularity or which when she could, she received it with such sort of intensity. Um, and so you have this like real Eucharistic desire amongst in a community life of these remarkable women. This is not just a clericalized doctrine for like this small group of 
fancy intellectual men. It's really omnipresent in the church. And in the modern world, you see that it's Eucharistic presence that transforms the totality of social life. Since you've asked me to talk about Simon Weil. <laughs> well, I, I did ask, I suppose. You invited. I invited very strongly. Simon Weil, right? I mean, as someone who spent her life, for example, um, giving up the academic career, living with those who were profoundly on the margin, workers who had no sort of basic income, suffering the very plight they had, she recognized in the Eucharist the total nonviolence of God, God who bestows to us in what looks totally not like God, mm -hmm. right? It's it's pure, she says, convention. It looks like nothing but bread and wine. And yet there in the total peaceable freedom, God gives himself, giving space for us to receive, not forcing us upon him or, or upon us, but to, to sort of create this space. And, you know, Simone never received herself. I mean, she, she never entered the church, even though she was very called to it, but she never felt she could fully enter. And yet she had this remarkable Eucharistic mysticism of distance mm. uh, that, that is linked, I think, her distance and recognizing Christ's presence in the hungry and the thirsty. But it's the Eucharist that gave her that vision. Mm. I've been talking with Tim O'Malley. We're talking mostly from his book, Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? It's out from Ave Maria Press. It's part of the new Engaging Catholicism series that Ave Maria Press is developing with our institute, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. You can find this book everywhere you find books. So Tim, thanks for spending the time to talk about this. It has been a great joy. And indeed. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. The Golden Rule. When you schedule a financial checkup with Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our people will be helpful and honest and kind. They will look for ways to save you money, and when your checkup is complete, they will send $150 to Redeemer Radio. For more info, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.